Welcome to this edition of the IFS Zooms In. I'm Paul Johnson, Director of the IFS. This week, we're going to look at childcare and the impact of COVID on it. Today, I'm joined by Claire Crawford from the University of Birmingham and Christine Farquharson of the IFS. Together with colleagues at various other institutions, they've been working with funding from the Nuffield Foundation to look at the financial impact that the pandemic has had on childcare providers in England. But before we look specifically at the question of how COVID has affected childcare, it's probably worthwhile just getting a little bit of background on what the childcare sector looks like. So, Christine, perhaps you could start by telling us what do we mean when we talk about the childcare sector in England? What sort of providers are we looking at? How many, uh, how many children are looked after? What's the kind of size of this sector? So in England, there's about 1.4 million zero to four-year-olds who are looked after in childcare on any given day. And that childcare is delivered by about 70,000 providers. Over half of those are childminders. These are typically small businesses, usually self-employed people, where one person looks after three, four, five, six children, often in their own home. But because childminders are so small, they deliver a relatively small share of the overall places in the sector. And actually, it's private sector providers who deliver almost half of the childcare places in the sector. These providers typically offer things like nurseries, um, often with a mix of income from parents' fees and income from the publicly funded free entitlement to childcare. The other providers in the sector are voluntary sector providers and maintained nursery schools and nursery classes, which are more usually attached to schools and typically offer are more skewed towards offering publicly funded childcare places. Could you just give us a, a sense of, uh, for that sector as a whole, roughly what fraction of its income comes from parents paying fees uh, and what fraction comes from government subsidy of one kind or another? In England, the government subsidises childcare in a bunch of different ways. One of the most well-known of these is the free entitlement to a part-time childcare place for all three- and four-year-olds, plus an extra 15 hours a week for those in working families, and a part-time place for two-year-olds in the most disadvantaged families. That free entitlement funding makes up about a quarter of the income in the sector. Most of the rest, around two-thirds, is paid by parent fees. And so these are parents who are reaching into their own pocket to pay for childcare. But that doesn't mean that the government is entirely uninvolved. Those parent fees are also subsidized in a variety of ways, ranging from programs like tax-free childcare or employer-sponsored childcare vouchers to subsidies through the, through the working age benefit system like universal credit and the working tax credit. So that's um, broadly what the sector looked like before uh, COVID hit. Um, large numbers, very large numbers of young children going into childcare with a large part of that financed by government subsidy. But what's, um, what's happened since, uh, since March? What sort of access to childcare has there been? So during the lockdown, the government removed all access to childcare, except for children who are in key worker families or children who are classed as vulnerable. That's actually quite a lot of children, mostly because around a fifth of adults are key workers. And if either of your parents is a key worker, you might have been eligible for childcare. But even so, we saw the take up of childcare just plummeted during the lockdown. Beforehand, it was about 1.4 million children on any given day. During the depths of the lockdown, it was fewer than 100,000 children accessing a childcare place on any given day. 
Since the start of June, the childcare sector has been allowed to open for children from all backgrounds, regardless of what their parents do for work or, or how vulnerable they might be. And we have seen that demand has started to recover from the lockdown, but it's, it's still not anywhere near where it was before. So even uh, in the middle of July, before the start of the summer holidays, only around 400,000 children were accessing a childcare place on any given day. Oh, that's interesting. And that's not because there were any constraints on what childcare providers were able to do. That was just a, a huge drop in demand relative to where we were before March. Yeah, so there were two factors going on in that. One thing that we know from the official statistics is that only around two-thirds of childcare providers were open at that point. So a big increase from the one-third of providers who had been open during the lockdown, but still nowhere near to everybody opening their doors back up. So some families might have found that their you know, usual childcare provider was not yet either ready or willing to take them back on. But there's also a variety of other reasons why parents might have been avoiding childcare. They might have felt that with school-aged children still working from home and doing home learning, it didn't make a lot of sense to pay for their younger children to go out to childcare, um, since they would still be balancing kids and working from home on their own anyway. And they might have been concerned about the health impacts of sending their kids away. This is something that we've seen a lot of from families with school-aged children. So that's a big reduction. Uh, Two thirds of the childcare providers might have been open, but you've only got about a third of the number of children in childcare in July relative to the pre-COVID period. You've obviously had that period when very few children were in childcare. What does that mean for the childcare sector and how have have childcare providers um, been supported to survive through a period when you might think they would all just have gone bust if they hadn't had some sort of support over this period? The government supported the sector in a variety of different ways. One of the most important of these is that that free entitlement funding, that public support for childcare, has continued uninterrupted during the lockdown, regardless of whether that child was actually going and taking up their free entitlement place, their provider was still getting the income for that. And that's been really important in protecting the income and the financial position of providers who deliver a lot of those publicly funded hours. But on the private side, where if a parent chooses not to send their child to childcare, a lot of that fee income might be lost, the government's uh, taken on a range of other approaches. The providers have been able to use the furlough scheme or the self-employment grants, which mainly apply to childminders. Uh, And so those are kind of wider economy-wide programs of support, but they also make a big difference for the sector as a whole. There have also been some programs that are specific to the childcare sector, including relief on business rates for nurseries, uh, as well as a variety of much more local, much more ad hoc programs, such as small grants or retainers that some local authorities chose to pay providers. And, of course, some providers, particularly uh, those with parents, with parent paid childcare hours on offer, will, will have been asking parents to continue to pay something towards their childcare during the lockdown period as well. Well, that does sound like a fairly comprehensive set of support. So that all of your workforce can be furloughed if you're a provider. You're getting your business rates paid. You might be getting some additional um, some additional money. Um, where, 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 where are the gaps? One of the biggest gaps is how the furlough scheme matches up with this continued public funding. So... There was quite a lot of controversy towards the beginning of lockdown when the government clarified its guidance that you couldn't both access the furlough scheme and access continued free entitlement funding in respect of essentially the same child or the same hour of childcare. 
Now, that's a pretty sensible proposition in, in practice, because what that means is that you're not allowed to both continue claiming your public funding for that hour of childcare at the same time as you claim additional public funding to furlough the staff member who would have been paid for delivering it. But in practice, the way that that scheme was implemented meant that some providers weren't able to fully access the amount of furlough they needed. And in particular, you could end up with a situation where you had one staff member who was sort of just about eligible for furlough. They sort of delivered 80 or 90 percent of their hours uh, funded by these parent fees, which have dried up. But because it wasn't 100 percent, you had to keep that staff member on and keep paying their wages. Okay, well, that all sounds very, um, very complicated. Um, but clearly, uh, clearly, this um, period has had a big effect on their finances and may well continue to do so. But Claire, even before COVID-19 hit, I think many people felt that the sector was, um, not, or large parts of the sector were not particularly financially sustainable in any case. Is that right? Um, we looked at data from the Department for Education's Early Child Early Years Childcare Provider Survey um, from before the pandemic, and that concern does seem to be borne out, at least to some extent, by the data that we saw. Um, so we split providers um, on the basis of what we called the income to cost ratio. So how large was their income in comparison to how much that how much how much they were having to pay out in terms of costs. Um, and we grouped providers into those that we called making a significant surplus, where they had at least six pounds of income for every five pounds of costs. Those making a significant deficit, uh, which we classified as anyone making less than four pounds of income for five pounds of costs. And then those in the middle who were, um, had income to cost ratios between that, that, those two figures. And we saw that even before the pandemic, around um, a quarter, uh, three in 10, around three in 10 providers looked like they were making a significant deficit um, where their, uh, their costs were substantially higher than their income. So, of course, we don't know whether that was a temporary situation um, where they might just have had um, very large costs and a dip in income which they were coming out of, or whether that might have been foreshadowing a more serious financial um, issue that might have ended up forcing them out of the sector. But it certainly looked like there were a number of providers in a precarious financial position. Well, that's a remarkable statistic, three in ten providers making a making a loss. I mean, that's, um, I mean, that's clearly not sustainable, even ignoring COVID, that's clearly not sustainable over time. Yes, I mean, each quarter and each year, we certainly see a lot of turnover in the childcare market. Um, so I think in the year um, kind of immediately preceding the pandemic, we saw about um, an eighth of providers who were registered with Ofsted to deliver childcare at the beginning of the year, having exited the market by the end of the year. Um, so that doesn't mean that they closed down and nothing replaced them necessarily, but it certainly means that one business owner might have shut down their business and, and another one might have taken over um, in their place. I mean, one important thing to bear in mind with these statistics, as Christine was alluding to earlier in her 
her description of the sector is that childminders do make up a very substantial proportion of providers and it seems like they have more precarious finances on average if you like um, so more like a third of childminders um, were running a significant deficit before the pandemic and that compares to more like 10 percent of those in the private and voluntary sector so childminders um, do seem to be a group of childcare providers who are at particular risk of um, experiencing financial difficulties. So Claire, going into the crisis, um, we already see the childcare sector potentially struggling financially somewhat. What, 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 does, what does your analysis suggest might have happened to the sector since the end of March? Well, the, the providers that are going to be, um, have been most severely affected by the lockdown are those that have relied heavily on parent fee income um, pre-crisis. So the public funding was largely protected, but fee income was obviously subject to potentially significant reductions. We looked at a, a pessimistic scenario where fee income fell to zero. And in that case, the proportion of providers in significant deficit increased from about three in 10 to about five in 10. So about half of all providers in significant deficit on a slightly more optimistic assumption of about 15 percent of fee income being retained, that fell back to about four in 10, but still significant increases in the financial difficulties that providers would have been facing during lockdown. And Christine, what do we know about the impacts on different types of providers? So Claire's told us about the overall impacts on the sector, but it looks really different depending on what type of provider we're talking about. When we look at you know, the good news for the voluntary sector and for nursery classes, these are providers that are predominantly funded by uh, by public funding. And so predominantly, they've kept their income through the crisis. Their costs have been largely the same. They, you know, we assume continue to pay their staff. And so their baseline, their financial position is pretty much unchanged from the baseline. But when we look at private sector providers, we see a much different story. We've got, uh, before the crisis, around a tenth of private sector providers were in significant deficit. And if we assume that all of that parent income goes away during the lockdown, that rises to over a quarter of them. The people who were really the worst hit, though, are the childminders. Even going into the crisis, a third of childminders were in significant deficit. And in the most pessimistic scenario, where we assume that all of the parents basically stop paying anything for their childcare, that rises, that that proportion doubles, and two-thirds of childminders are at risk of significant deficit during the lockdown. So the, there are some really disproportionate impacts on particular parts of the sector and particular types of providers that might have longer-term impacts on the type of care uh, that the sector as a whole is able to deliver going forward. So uh, we're now um, moving into the autumn. The, the, the lockdown, at least, is broadly um, over. Uh, what, what do you think um, we can see going forward? Where does the financial health of the sector sit now? So unfortunately, we don't have a crystal ball um, and we can't predict the, the really key question for the sector, which is how much of that parental demand of those 1.4 million children are going to come back? And when are they going to do it? How quickly will the demand recover? Without knowing that, it's impossible to know what the finances of the sector might look like. But we are able to run a bunch of different scenarios. And so we find that 
for every 5% fall in the income from parent fees, the share of providers who are at risk of significant deficit increases by around three to four percentage points, which means that there's this, this really neat relationship, at least up to a 25% loss in fee income, between the financial hit that providers are taking from parents choosing not to send their children back to childcare and the risk that some of these providers have in terms of running a significant deficit. Of course, that's only looking at the fee income. Parents, if parents are particularly worried about uh, the health concerns of sending their children back, so not just reluctant to part with their own cash, but reluctant to part with their kid and send them back to the nursery, then we might see that income from public funding falls as well, at least after January, when pupil numbers will be reassessed. And here, there's a real risk of crossing a threshold and things getting really bad. So relative to the loss of fee income, losing funding doesn't make too much of a difference uh, at small levels of losses. But once you move into losing 25% of your funding on top of 25% of your fee income, you see a large number of providers suddenly being, being at risk of running a significant deficit. And so there is a policy point here which is that government needs to think carefully when they're reassessing the people numbers in January about what will happen to these providers if people numbers are still low when they look at them, but that they then recover over the course of the year. And we see a lot of publicly funded providers who so far have been pretty well protected, uh, who are now delivering care to a lot more children effectively without being paid to do that. So just, just so I understand that, um, the issue is that if some parents don't send their children back, even though they've got publicly funded places, the providers lose that public funding. They may therefore either shrink or close down because they're making a deficit. And if the demand then comes back later on, we're going to have a lack of childcare places. Is, is, is that the broad concern? Yeah. So the issue on the public funding side is that so far these providers have been funded essentially under business as usual conditions. And so we'd expect that, you know, at least financially, they'd be able to open their doors and take in as many kids as they were looking after before the crisis. And that's going to be the case uh, into the autumn term as well. So the Department for Education has confirmed that this autumn, kind of exceptionally, it will continue to fund providers on the basis of how many kids they were looking after last January. That all changes in 2021. So in January 2021, the Department for Education will reassess the number of children providers are looking after, and they'll use that new pupil number to decide how much funding providers will get for both the spring and the summer terms, so from January until August 2021. Now, that's potentially quite a sensible thing to do if we think that fewer kids are going to want to access their publicly funded childcare. We don't necessarily need to be paying for providers to essentially have all of those slots available. But the risk we face is that if parents are still quite worried about sending their children back in January, potentially because there's been a second wave or a local lockdown, those pupil numbers in January will not be a good indication of what might happen over the next eight months. And so we risk a situation where in June, July, August, providers see a lot more children wanting to take up their, you know, legally guaranteed place to a free, to, for a free entitlement offer at providers who are not receiving any money to provide or to deliver that place. Okay, so that's, um, there could be 
real consequences of uh, the timing of which at which people want to send their children back into the childcare sector. Um, Claire, we focused a lot on the financial risks to the, the, the sector so far, but what sort of other risks uh, might it face over the next year or so? Well, childcare providers during lockdown um, had to act according to specific strict guidance, um, according to the numbers of children that could mix together um, and the staff that they could have in their business um, and so on. Those restrictions were lifted towards the end of the summer term, but there are still some real um, kind of restrictions on how they can operate that are in place, at least for the foreseeable future. Some of the biggest ones are the fact that it's very difficult for parents to be able to come into the childcare setting. Um, So that has um, two potential issues. One is that parents may not be able to visit new childcare settings to check whether they look like a good match for them and their child, um, which might pose a risk for the ability of childcare providers to obtain new business. And that might be compounded by the fact that Um, Children, um, often when they're first settled into nursery, their parent remains on the premises for some time to make sure that they're settling in okay. And again, that might not be a problem. So if you're a parent who has the possibility of um, alternative, perhaps informal childcare from grandparents, you may not want to go through um, the uh, hassle, if you like, or the uncertainty of whether your child will settle in a new setting. So on both fronts, that might be a risk to the ability of childcare providers to draw in new business. There's also some additional risks in terms of other restrictions on adults entering the childcare setting. Um, So lots of providers, for example, rely on agency staff to cover staff losses um, or to um, smooth their their use of of staff across the the working week or the month. That's not going to be possible under the existing guidelines because of the restrictions on who can um, come into the childcare settings. And similarly, some of the services they might use to support the children, um, like speech and language therapists, again, they might not be able to access. So that might have some consequences in terms of the quality of provision that those children in particular might be receiving. So quite a lot of long-term potential consequences, both on the financial side and because of the other restrictions associated with the current situation. Christine, lots of bits of the economy are suffering um, at at the moment. Childcare providers certainly aren't alone in taking a financial hit. Uh, Are there any particular reasons? I mean, as you say, a a lot of this is private sector business. Is is there any reasons particularly focused on on this sector and and to treat it differently from um, other businesses that have um, suffered over this period? So if I were in the Department for Education or at the Treasury, I'd be thinking about three specific things in relation to the childcare sector. The first is just about the publicly funded hours. The government has a commitment that two, three and four year olds are going to be able to take up the free entitlement place that they're eligible for. And although that commitment's been devolved to local authorities, local authorities might find that their job is made a lot harder if changes to the funding rules uh, mean that some providers shut their doors and they really just struggle to get sufficient capacity online. The other two concerns apply both to the public market and to the privately funded childcare. The first of those is we've heard a lot about the risks to children's education from being out of school and doing home learning. 
And traditionally, at least, one of the reasons that the government has provided childcare and has subsidized childcare is in order to help children to develop school readiness so that they're ready to learn when they first go to reception and to help minimize the gaps between children from poorer and richer backgrounds. Now, the evidence about how well that's worked in the English system is is pretty mixed, but most of those comparisons are between having free childcare versus having paid for childcare. We know much less about the risks of having childcare versus having no formal childcare at all in England. The other point is that parents need childcare. One of the biggest reasons that uh, the school the school closures have been so damaging to families has been parents have been asked to be teachers and, and childcare centers in their own homes at the same time as they're trying to work. Now that people are starting to get back to the office and we're seeing much more of a push for people to leave their homes and go back to their places of work, it becomes even more important that parents of these very young children have some sort of credible plan in place to look after them. And that matters not just from a sort of labor market point of view, but it has particular implications for mothers who are more likely to leave the labor market. And that in turn has major consequences for the gender wage gap. So ensuring the sufficiency and the government's ability to deliver what it's already promised, making sure that children are ready to learn once they go to school, and trying to intervene to prevent the gender wage gap from getting bigger as, you know, there's a risk might happen during this whole pandemic are three of the reasons why government might be particularly focused on this sector. They, they all sound like very, uh, very important reasons. This is clearly an important economic and social uh, part of our, well, important part of our economic and social infrastructure. Uh, so finally, Claire, what does that mean that government might want to do um, to intervene and to uh, what sort of package of support, if any, uh, should it be thinking about going forward? Well, I guess the first thing to say is um, to return to those statistics that we were discussing earlier in the podcast about the financial situation of the sector pre-lockdown. Um, we saw even before the pandemic that there were large proportions of providers that seemed to be struggling, um, facing financial difficulties. And at that point, aside from the um support that the government was providing through the public funding of free entitlement hours and through the demand subsidies um, by helping parents pay their fees as a result of the tax-free childcare and and universal credit support and so on. Um, It wasn't stepping in to try and prevent providers at financial risk from exiting the market. The market seemed to be relatively mature. It was seeing levels of turnover from year to year, but was still providing childcare at a level that was sufficient to offer all of those children um, that are eligible access to their free entitlement places. So I guess on the one hand, you could argue that the market may be able to respond on its own. We've seen evidence um, from pre-pandemic that providers enter and exit the market and respond to changes in demand. Um, The question, of course, is whether that is likely and um, able to continue now. We've obviously seen a very big change in parental demand, much more than providers at a national level will have experienced um, before. Um, and uh, the question would be whether the market might need some support in order to um, ensure that capacity is retained everywhere that we need it. Um, in terms of how the government might respond if it chose to do so, 
Um, we heard from Christine that the providers who were most at risk of leaving the market, who were being tipped into significant financial difficulties, if you like, as a result of COVID, were mostly childminders um, and to some extent those private providers as well. So if what the government really wanted to avoid was substantial numbers of providers leaving the market and capacity being reduced, then it might want to consider focusing um, support on those providers most 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 at risk of doing so. So those providers who would otherwise have looked to be financially viable businesses, but saw a significant hit as a result of the pandemic. I guess one important thing to say is that the best way to target those providers will not be by changing um, public funding entitlement rates, for example. Um, and the reason for that is the providers who are most at risk um, as a result of the pandemic are those who are most reliant on parent fees for their, for their income. And changing the amount that the government pays a childcare provider per hour for the funded hours that they um, provide the children in their setting is not going to help those providers who are most, most at risk of exiting the market. Of course, as Christine was describing, the government may well wish to target providers who do um, offer free entitlement hours for reasons that are nothing to do with um, their likelihood of going out of business, but rather of ensuring that they can meet their guarantee of a free entitlement place. But it is worth pointing out that the providers most at risk of exiting the market as a result of the pandemic are not those who are mostly reliant on public funding. So that particular mechanism may not be the best choice of support. So this is uh, an incredibly important part of the UK social and economic infrastructure, as we've uh, as we've discovered. Uh, childcare providers were uh, a lot of them were uh, financially uh, struggling even before we came into the crisis, and that's clearly been exacerbated by what's happened over the last several months. One of the concerns going forward is that that may continue as demand for childcare places falls at least for a period, which might result in some childcare providers going out of business, though we can expect that demand to increase over time. And that will be very difficult to meet that demand if the um, if in the shorter term, some childcare providers have closed down. Finding the right way for government to support those providers, particularly the smaller ones, particularly the ones dependent on parent parental fees, which are the ones that are going to be struggling the most, might not be straightforward but it might well be an important part of policy over the next uh, over the next six to twelve months we hear a lot about other parts of the education system about schools and universities but we don't hear so much about this incredibly important part the child care providers thank you very much uh, to claire and to christine for taking us through that um, uh, that set of analyses of what might be happening in that sector and really uh, illuminating some of the problems that the sector's facing and some of the choices that government's now going to face. I think that brings us to an end of this um, episode. If you did enjoy uh, this episode of the IFS Zooms In, please hit subscribe and rate us. And you can always stay on top of our latest work by visiting www.ifs.org.uk. Stay well and we look forward to speaking to you again soon.